Chapter Four, Part Fifteen of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten. Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Root Trial. Part Fifteen of Twenty Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones. Part Fifteen. A curious use of the English language. I believe it is in that connection, though, that he speaks about Mr. Dorsey having the impudence to go to the President of the United States. That is not a very impudent proceeding. In this country, a president is not so far above the citizen. In this country, we have not gotten to the sublimity of snobbery that a citizen cannot give his opinion to the president, especially a citizen who did all he could to make him president, especially a citizen in whom he had confidence. Not much impudence in that. I do not think that during the campaign General Garfield would have regarded it impudent on the part of Mr. Dorsey to speak to him. I do not believe in a man, the moment he is elected president, feeding upon the meat that makes him so great that the man who helped put him there cannot approach him, and every man who voted for him helped to put him there. I am a believer in the doctrine that the president is a servant of the people. I have not yet reached that other refinement of snobbery. Mr. Bliss interjects. In point of fact, Colonel Ingersoll, I made no such statement. Now let me read the passage on the very page you refer to. Patched up the affidavit of Mr. Burdell, addressed it to the president, admittedly went to the president with it, and then had the impudence to come here and malign the character of General Garfield by saying that upon that affidavit of an accused man, instead of seeking a trial, he would have removed two members of his cabinet. I meant nothing about the impudence of going to the president. Mr. Ingersoll he had the impudence then to come here and malign garfield by saying that upon that statement he would have turned out two members of his cabinet that is mr bliss's idea of impudence and yet upon the testimony of the same man he wants to put five men in the penitentiary mr bliss not upon the sole testimony i suppose mr ingersoll not upon the soulless testimony. Now, I think that Mr. Dorsey had a right to go and see Mr. Garfield. I think he had a right to take that affidavit with him. General Garfield was told what this man had said concerning Mr. Dorsey. He had the right to take that affidavit of that man with him so that General Garfield, or the then Attorney General, rather, might know how much confidence to put in the statement of that man. He had a right to do that. If he found in this way that his attorney general and his postmaster general were seeking to have a man convicted by means not entirely honorable, then it was not only his privilege, but it was his duty 
who discharged them from his cabinet. But I am not saying anything in regard to them now, because they are not here to defend themselves. Mr. Bliss, I want to correct myself. Further down on that page I see I did refer to the impudence of this man going to Garfield. Mr. Ingersoll, well, as Mr. Bliss has been fair enough to state it, I will not follow up my advantage. On another page, Mr. Bliss says that the idea that Mr. Vail did what he did for Minor out of any sympathy is too thin. Mr. Bliss cannot believe that Vail became Minor's friend so suddenly, but he thinks it highly probable that they conspired instantly. That is his view of human nature. Friendship is of slow growth, conspiracy is a hothouse plant. Gentlemen, is that your view of human nature? That a man cannot become the friend of another suddenly? Whenever he does become his friend, the friendship has to be formed suddenly, does it not? There is a first time to everything. A moment before it did not exist, a moment afterwards it is dead, very suddenly. There was a boy came to town one morning and met an old friend. The old friend asked the boy, How is your father? He says, Pretty well for him. How is your mother? Pretty well for her. Well, how is your grandmother? She is dead. Well, says the old man, She must have died suddenly. Well, said the boy, Pretty sudden for her. Whenever one man becomes the friend of another's, a moment before that he was not, and a moment after he was. It must be sudden. But I imagine that there was a friendship sprang up between Vale and Minor, and I will tell you why. They have been partners ever since. You, gentlemen, have had the same experience a thousand times. It is not necessary to conspire with a man in order to like him. Neither is it necessary to like him to conspire with him. Men have conspired without friendship a thousand times more, probably, than they have formed a friendship without conspiracy. Mr. Bliss says that because Minor failed to produce the power of attorney that Moore swore was given to him when he went west, the jury have a right to infer that instructions to get up false petitions were in writing and were included in that power of attorney. Mr. Moore did not swear to the contents of that power of attorney. Do you think that it is within the realm of probability that a man ever gave a power of attorney to another and inserted in it? You are hereby authorized to get up false petitions. You are further authorized to have them so written that you can tear them off and paste others on. End B. You will make such contracts with all contractors. P.S. Don't tell anybody. There was another witness in this case. Mr. Grimes, page 808. Not the one that wore the coat. 
all buttoned down before, but Mr. Grimes, postmaster at Kearney. He came all the way here to swear that he stopped using mail bills on the route from Kearney to Kent, because he was so ordered by a letter from the post office department. Then it was discovered that he did not have the letter with him. He went home to get the letter, but he never came back any more. We introduced Spangler, page 341, from the inspection division of the post office department. I think he was in charge of that division. He swore, as a matter of fact, that there never were any mail bills on that route at all. Mr. Carpenter interjects. He was in charge of all the mail bills on that route. Mr. Ingersoll, the mail bills on that particular route. Batman Grimes was brought clear here to prove that he stopped using mail bills, and then we proved that there never were any mail bills used on that route for him to stop using. I do not suppose that that man was dishonest. These people just got around him and talked to him until he remembered it. They just planted the seed in his mind, and then came the dew and the rain and the lightning until it began to sprout and in time blossomed and bore fruit. Mail bills. When we come to find out that there never were any mail bills used, away went Mr. Grimes. On page 49, 69, Mr. Bliss says, They have not, up to this moment, dared to state under oath, I think, that those books are not in their possession. On page 3784, Dorsey swears that he never received any such books, never saw any such books. He swore again and again that he never heard of any such books. Mr. Bliss interjects, I stated distinctly that the defendants had not stated that in the form required to excuse them from the production. I stated that distinctly. Mr. Ingersoll, all right, away goes that. On page 4983, Mr. Bliss says, Is it not an absurdity to suppose that Dorsey would leave Rodell in charge of his business from July 1879 to August 1880, and then, on from that time, until the close of the contract term in August 1882. Leave all the business in that way, and then through Bosler settle the accounts with Mr. Rodell, and have no knowledge in any way, not only of the entries contained in the books which Rodell kept, but have no knowledge that he kept any books whatever? Is it not absurd to suppose any such thing? These ten roots represented an income of two hundred and fifty odd thousand dollars a year, or a total business, including income and outgo, of five hundred thousand dollars a year for three years, going no further than that. These ten roots alone represented transactions amounting to half a million dollars a year. There were 130 roots, and Mr. Dorsey took one-third in value, if not in number. If the value was the same, Mr. Dorsey took not less than 40 roots, 
as ten roots involved a business of one million five hundred thousand dollars in that period the forty roots involved in that proportion transactions amounting to six million dollars you made a calculation on the supposition that all the roots were expedited the same as those in the indictment and when you made that calculation you knew they were not expedited mr bliss interjects i object your honor to his making any such statement as that in the first place it is not evidence and in the second place which is of more importance it is not true i did not know any such thing and i do not know any such thing mr ingersoll do you say now that the other roots of his to the number you talked of were expedited mr bliss i am not on the stand to be cross-examined now but i do say to your honor that there is no evidence of that in this case and then i go beyond that and say that i did not know those things then and you do not know them now mr ingersoll very well he made the argument on the supposition that all the routes were expedited i say that not one of them was expedited in which mr dorsey had an interest mr bliss there is no evidence on that subject mr ingersoll is there any evidence of what you say mr bliss i put a suppositious case you have stated a fact mr ingersoll i will put another suppositious case and mine is that the other routes were not expedited the court interjects that is the right way to meet it counsel ought not to turn to counsel on the other side and make an appeal to his knowledge in regard to matters not in evidence mr ingersoll i know but he said he did not know it then i asked him as a matter of fact if he did not know the court interposing he stated his supposition and you met that supposition mr ingersoll interposing i am always glad to get information now then i will go to another point and that is the seven thousand five hundred dollar check mr bliss speaks of that check at page forty nine ninety seven and he says there is a question raised as to whether it was drawn in mr wardell's presence i do not think there was how could such a question be raised gentlemen the check was made payable to m c wardell or his order on the back of the check is mr wardell's name put there by himself he is the only endorser and yet mr bliss tells you that there is a question raised as to whether the money was drawn in mr wardell's presence or not the check shows and the evidence is absolutely perfect that the money was paid to wardell in person the question is this whether it was drawn in mr wardell's presence if it was paid to him in person i imagine that he was in that neighborhood at the time the check was written by him everything except the signature of dorsey it was drawn to mr wardell or order and endorsed by wardell himself there was no other endorser 
so that it is absolutely certain that he drew the money in question. And yet Mr. Bliss says the question is whether it was drawn in Verdell's presence or not. Mr. Bliss continues, and states that the money went to S.W. Dorsey. Did it? Mr. Dorsey, on page 3965, states the circumstances. He was packing to go away. He had not the time to go to the bank himself. He had the check written payable to Mr. Verdell or order, and he signed it. Verdell went to the bank, got the money, brought it back, and put it in his carpet sack. That is the testimony. Now, Mr. Bliss says, no evidence was given as to what Stephen W. Dorsey was wanting just at that time with $7,500 in bills. According to Mr. Burdell, he wanted that money to give to Mr. Brady. That is what Mr. Burdell intended to swear. But when he found that that check was made payable to him and endorsed by him, then they had to take another tack. They dare not say then, that is the check. They dare not say then, that is the money. Burdell had forgotten at the time he swore that that check was payable to his order. When he told his $7,000 story to McVeigh, he forgot about that check. When he told it to the postmaster general, if he did, I have forgotten whether he did or not, he forgot about that. Now, gentlemen, I will call your attention to the part to which I really wish to direct your attention. It is an admission by the government, an admission by Colonel Bliss. It is in these words on page 4997, speaking of this very thing. However that may be, they themselves put in a check here for $7,500, drawn about the time Mr. Wardell spoke of, the money upon which admittedly went to Stephen W. Dorsey, though there is a question raised as to whether it was drawn in Mr. Wardell's presence or whether it was not drawn by him. But the money went to Stephen W. Dorsey, and there was a promise made to show you what was done with that $7,500. But, like many another promise in this case, it remains unfulfilled today. No evidence was given as to what Stephen W. Dorsey was wanting just at that time with $7,500 in bills. Mr. Dorsey offered to tell you what he did with it, and you said you did not want it. You did not want to know when he was on the stand. He offered to tell you what he did with the money, and you would not take his statement. Hear what he says. Mr. Dorsey was not taking $7,500 in bills to the West. How do you know? Whoever told Mr. Bliss that he was not taking $7,500 to the West? He must have got that from Mr. Rodell. Maybe that is the reason they would not allow Dorsey to tell, because before that time they had been informed that he would swear that he took the $7,500 to the West. How else did Mr. Bliss find this out? It is not in the evidence, not a line. 
someone must have told him who could have told him nobody i think except mr Rodell. is it possible then that mr bliss was afraid that mr dorsey would swear that he took it west and was he afraid also that you would believe it i do not know he did not want him to state now here is what i want to call your attention to after all the talk about that evidence all the talk about the seven thousand dollars all the talk about the seven thousand five hundred dollar check mr bliss at least admits to this jury of course all that transaction might have occurred precisely as mr Burdell testified and there might have involved no corruption on mr brady's part if then it may have occurred exactly as Rodell swore and involved no corruption certainly it might have occurred as mr s w dorsey swore and involved no corruption i will go on now with a little more from mr bliss the drawing of the money and going to mr brady's room might have been a mere accident as a call there to attend to some other business of course that is reasonable i might go to the bank and draw five thousand dollars and then i might stop in the treasury department but that is no evidence that i am bribing the secretary of the treasury i might step over to see the president that would be no reason to believe that i bribed the executive of course that is not conclusive it is only a little straw in this case as showing a transaction of that kind involved in connection with all the evidence you have in this case a little straw of evidence of mr brady's act and particularly as at the time when that occurs evidence in connection with the large increases which mr brady was then ordering evidence in connection with the books and the evidence they bear evidence in connection with the declarations of brady to walsh evidence all consistent then he adds this piece of gratuitous information mr dorsey was not taking seven thousand five hundred dollars in bills to the west how does he know how did he find that out and has it come to this has all the testimony upon that point has the confession of Rodell to McVeigh and James shrunk to this little measure? That it is only a straw? Has it shrunk to this measure that Mr. Bliss admits that the full thing might have been exactly as Rodell swears and yet have been perfectly innocent? Has it shrunk to this little measure? The government would not tell us i presume the government will not tell us what check it was the proceeds of which were taken by mr dorsey to mr brady neither will they say whether that sum was made up in one check or by adding together a number of checks and if so what number at page two ninety five mr bliss told you in his opening speech that Rodell had on one occasion gone with Mr. Stephen W. Dorsey to the bank, and that $7,000 had been drawn, and that he had gone with Dorsey to the door of the post office department, 
or to Brady's room at the time. He would not undertake to say which. Mr. Dorsey stating to him that he intended to pay that money to Mr. Brady, and that he, Mr. Dorsey, then went in. But when they come to put this man on the stand, he will not swear that Dorsey ever told him that he intended to pay the money to Brady. Probably that part of the statement that Dorsey told him that he was going to pay that money to Brady can be found in the affidavit made before Mr. Woodward in September and repeated in the affidavit made at Hartford in November. But that is not in evidence here. Now, we brought all the checks that we had given on Middleton's bank, with the exception of two, I believe, that amounted to some hundred and odd dollars. We gave the government counsel notice that there were two others. Among those checks was this one for $7,500. There were many others. I asked the gentleman to pick out their check. They would not do it. I asked the gentlemen to pick out their check. They did not do it. And now, if we had failed to produce checks that were important in this case, the government could have produced the books and clerks of Middleton and Company and shown exactly the checks we drew upon that bank that month. They did not do it. As a matter of fact, I offered all the checks on all the banks I could think of that we had any business with in any way except one, and that turned out to be the German-American Savings Bank, and it turned out that that went into bankruptcy eight months before this business. So there is no trouble about that. Why didn't they not pick out the checks upon which they claimed the money was drawn that was paid to Brady? Mr. Rodell, on page 2254, in speaking of the money, swore that the money was charged to Brady on the stub. He says that Dorsey told him, you will find the amount on the stub of the checkbook. The jury will notice that he speaks of the amount, the stub, and the book, all in the singular. That was followed, I believe, by about six pages of discussion, and everybody who took part in that discussion, the court included, spoke of the sum of money as an amount upon a stub in a checkbook. I call attention to 2254, 55, 56, 57, 58, and 59. On all those pages, it is spoken of as a stub of a checkbook or amount on a stub in a checkbook. After the discussion was closed, then the witness began to talk about books, checks, stubs, and amounts. Why did he do that? His object was to get the evidence broad enough, checks and checkbooks enough, to fit their notice to the end that they might get possession of all the checkbooks and of all the amounts on all the stubs. What more? The discussion convinced Mr. Rodell that it would be far safer to say stubs than stub, and it would be far better to say checkbooks than checkbook, and far better to say amounts than amount. 
because he would have a better chance in adding these up so as to make six thousand five hundred dollars or seven thousand dollars or six thousand dollars than to be brought down to one check one amount and one stub book so he went off into the region of safety into the domain of the plural now the last point or at least for this evening so far as mr bliss is concerned i believe is about the red books mr bliss tells you that mrs cushman was telegraphed to from the far west there was a little anxiety i believe on the part of wardell about the book and he telegraphed her she found it there in the woodshed you know hanging up i think in the old family carpet sack i have forgotten where she found it and she put it away now there is a question i want to ask here and i know that mr merrick when he closes will answer it to his entire satisfaction i do not know whether he will to yours or to mine how does it happen that mrs wordell never saw that red book how does it happen that mrs wordell when she was put on the stand never mentioned that red book how does it happen that she never heard of it when her husband went to new york to get it when everything he had in the world according to his idea was depending upon it when it was his sheet anchor when it was the cornerstone of his safety and yet his wife never heard of it never saw it did not know it was in the woodshed slept in that house night after night and did not even dream that her husband's safety depended upon any book in a carpet sack hanging in the woodshed she never said a word about it on the stand not a word gentlemen nobody can answer that question except by admitting that the book was not there and did not exist but perhaps i have said enough about the speeches of mr kerr and mr bliss of course their business is to do what they can to convict i do not know that i ought to take up much more time with them i feel a good deal as that man did in pennsylvania who was offered one quarter of a field of wheat if he would harvest it he went out and looked at it well he says i don't believe i will do it the owner says why well he says there's a good deal of straw and i don't think there is wheat enough to make a quarter so now gentlemen if the court will permit i would like to adjourn till to-morrow morning this ends chapter four part fifteen of twenty-four